640 Toronto presents Think Tank. The breaking stories you care about. Facts and opinions that get you through the day. Now, let's meet the guests. All right, let's do that. 7.36 on a frigid morning, so we'll try and warm you up with some uh, scintillating conversation. Feels like minus 16 in the city right now with a current temperature of minus 10. We say good morning to former mayoral candidate Chloe Brown. It's great to have you on. You staying warm? I'm doing my best, but, you know, Canadian weather is not for the week. It's just, yeah, and we're going to hold this uh, weather until uh, Sunday. And Steve Pakin joins us, author, broadcaster, TV host, The Agenda. Steve, explain to us, we're going to put you under the hot seat right now, no pun intended. Why do Chloe and I live here? I know why you do, but why do Chloe and I continue (laughs) to stay here? What's wrong with us? I live here because I need to be able to go to at least one or two Maple Leaf hockey games every year. So you got to be here for that. Oh. Why you two live here is beyond me. I don't know. Misery loves company. Misery loves company. Um, all there right. You go. Let's get to uh, the Iowa caucus results. And, and I wrote to you guys last night. Let's assume Trump won. And he did. Um, but it was closer than we thought. And I'm going to I'm going to give you something I just saw from Joe Scarborough on MSNBC this morning. And he reasoned if Barack Obama took four years off, had another four years of eligibility and half the Democrats in Iowa voted against him. Would that be a good sign or a bad sign? So just just Steve, give me a, a, a eagle's eye view of uh, of the result last night and go. Is there anything great or not so great, as Trump would say, about the result? For him? I appreciate Joe. Well, Joe is looking for I love Joe. I watch Morning Joe uh, when I'm not listening to you, of course. But I think he's grasping at straws here. I think when you win by 30 points, whether it's uh, 10 people voting or a thousand or 10,000 people voting, that's pretty good. A 30 point victory is pretty good for the former president who's as controversial as he is. And now it's on to New Hampshire, where he's not going to win by 30 points. And that's when we're going to find out a lot more about the state of this race. Chloe, what's your uh, what's your observation? We were playing some Trump cuts this morning and I'm oh, I'm of two minds. One, I, I'm not sure I'm ready for it um, and, and I'm not sure I'm ready to be exhausted for the entire year of, of Trump, this Trump, that. And my second observation is. The Democrats better snap a finger and wake up because uh, if they think they don't need to cat to game plan and strategize against him the next 11 months, they're dreaming. I don't have the cholesterol for this, Greg. <laughs> I have to be honest. <laughs> I don't have the cholesterol for this. Uh, I remember 2016, and it's just, it's a lot to take in that after all the events that led up to January 6th, that this man has another chance to do this. So, I'm like many Canadians who are feeling the anxiety about him even being able to run. And I'm just hoping that America takes this moral litmus test a little bit more seriously this time. Now, Chloe, let me stay with you. I saw an awful lot um, of people very, very upset. I remember uh, I know too many people that cried the morning after like literal tears. I'm not mocking it. That's how emotional they were when Hillary Clinton conceded the next morning. But a lot, some of what was predicted about Trump didn't emerge. The stock market didn't collapse. Um, the, so the economy held. And, and to be honest, we all need a strong economy. Um, and I see this poll yesterday. Two thirds of Canadians said American democracy cannot survive another four years of Donald Trump in the White House. And I'm like, I, not not survive. Like, how do you view that poll? I, I guess we all have different opinions of democracy, but I think that's a little much. It, we, we may not like what we see south of the border and some of the policy, but democracy not surviving, it always has and always will, won't it? 
Well, you have to look at it from the public service back end. And it's like we don't have time to be babysitting bad leaders. We need people that are able to stand on their own, work with the public, and send us information to make better policy programs and services. You can't do that with people when you have a leader that's trying to sell everything. And a really good example of that is what's happening in Ontario right now with Service Ontario and a variety of our services that are being sold and privatized by Doug Ford. You can't deliver good public services if the leader of the public service is intending to dismantle it. So, yeah, that's how I feel as a young public servant, where it's like, I could do great work if you elect a great leader. If you don't, I'll do terrible things because I'm in service to democracy and democracy is dictated by who you elect or you do not vote for. I want to move because um, uh, there's so much local stuff going on, um, and I'm actually seeing something, uh, a new story. I'm going to throw it you right at the end. It's not complicated uh, about Loblaws and potentially selling pot. But, Steve, let me ask you, Joe Biden, are we having enough honest conversations about this? Uh, he'll be 82 years old this November. He'd be 86 at the end of his term. I say that, and we kind of see him really struggling sometimes. Are we have are the Democrats themselves, if you and I were Democratic strategists, how how much of how many nights of ours are sleepless wondering whether or not we can run him to win and then run him to actually do the job for the four years subsequent to that? I think there are some Democrats who are old enough to remember that when you take on a sitting president and try to make his path to the nomination more difficult, uh, you actually don't help that president at all. You don't get a different candidate. All you do is help your opponent. And that's what happened in 1980. When Teddy Kennedy took on Jimmy Carter, uh, it didn't help get Teddy Kennedy the nomination. It just wounded Jimmy Carter, and the result was Ronald Reagan winning in a landslide. Uh, Nobody, I think people remember that. I don't think anybody, and we're seeing this already, Greg, nobody's taking on Joe Biden. Nobody is getting out there. No significant candidate is getting out there. One guy did it, but he was not a significant candidate. Are you talking Gavin Gavin Newsom in the debate uh, with Ron DeSantis? Or you're talking about the other guy running against him? I'm talking about the guy from Minnesota whose name escapes me at the moment. Me too, which tells us something. (laughs) We don't remember his name. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, Nobody has seen it. I mean, Newsom is out there, but he's never won. (laughs) The one thing Newsom did say to DeSantis in that debate that everybody remembers was, the only thing you and I have in common is that neither one of us are going to be the nominee of our party by the time this thing is over. Look, Joe Joe Biden, um, I'm not telling tales out of school here. Joe Biden looks frail. Uh, Joe Biden may not be the first choice of a lot of Democrats. If they had their druthers privately, they would pick somebody else. But the reality is there will be if he stays on, if he makes it to the finish line, there will be a lot of Americans who will prefer to have Joe Biden in the condition he's in than Donald Trump under any condition. And that's something we need to remember. I think so. I think so. All right. I want to move locally uh, and I want to come to Chloe. Uh, We see this story in the Toronto Star this morning, Chloe. Um, Justin Trudeau's Toronto MPs furious at Olivia Chow. I I spoke to a couple of those MPs last night um, who aren't furious, who actually have gone on the record. So they're not the people leaking stuff to the star. And I'll blame the star for publishing it. So we got anonymous source for Olivia Chow. We've got anonymous liberal MPs. Do you think, and this is all about property tax and, and taking care of, of uh, the migrant situation and the potential 6% extra tax tacked on to Toronto residents, is this going to be a bit of a finger-pointing contest? I mean, not for the next several weeks until the budget's done, but for the whole year? I'm not sure it makes either party, uh, either side look great. 
it makes me laugh out loud. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, To be honest, I think it's time that Toronto MPs get off their laurels and actually try to engage with the communities that elected them. I think that they run to Parliament Hill too easily and they rely on newsletters to engage with the public and that's been failing them. If they really want to secure another four years or even like start working with the mayor to get more favorable policies, they need to, I don't know, just deal with getting property taxes. We're dealing with them as citizens mm-hmm. and they're not, their salaries are always up with inflation. It's not like they're poor. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's one of those things that just makes me laugh because ideally intergovernmental affairs should be working here instead of finger pointing like children it's really about securing me and my community the best like contract and they're not doing that so i don't really care what happens between them as a political class the rest of us are going to hold them to the fire which is getting better services Steve, what's your thought on uh, on a bit of a pitch battle here? It's always going to happen, right? Municipal governments, federal governments, the province sits back, as, as Chloe mentioned, doing their own thing right now. And they're probably giggling at this at this pitch battle for anonymous sources in the story. Well, it is a bit of a tried, tested and true strategy uh, for each level of government to blame the other for things that may not be going perfectly. I think the reality is everybody's got a little bit of truth on their side. And I like what Chloe just had to say about at the end of the day, different levels of government can bother and accuse each other of different things. What's important here is what happens with the citizens at the end of the day. Uh, That is 110% right, and let's keep our eye on that ball. But the reality is everybody's got a bit of truth on their side. I mean, the federal government did allow a lot more immigrants and asylum seekers and refugees into the country this year. And that does fall on municipalities to be able to find housing and services for them. On the other hand, the federal government has contributed billions of dollars in assistance to that cause. On the other hand, it may not be as much as the city wants. I don't think any of us are smart enough, no offense to us, but we're not smart enough to to figure out to the, to the nearest dime who's got more truth on their side than, uh, than the other in this case. Uh, so it's one of those complicated stories where everybody's a little bit right and a little bit wrong, and we just sort of got to watch it solve itself and figure itself out. We've got Steve Pakin and Chloe Brown with us on Think Tank on 640 Toronto on Toronto Today. We'll run this till uh, top of the hour at 8 o'clock. Chloe, you'd be an ideal person to ask this. Olivia Chow's got a job that you ran for. People admired your campaign, admired your bluntness, and admired your honesty about it. Would you be happy six months in with an anonymous source going as far as this source went? Like you see Olivia front facing and she's like, it's a process. Here's her quote. It's a process. I'm optimistic that we'll find some kind of solution. And there's a source close to her granted anonymity by the paper, which is fine because they're not authorized to speak to the media. Who's kind of digging in the knife a little bit. Like, would you would you want to know who that source is? Or is this part of the game that you say something nice front facing and let somebody else do the dirty work? I, I don't feel like that's how you'd operate. As someone who works, I would just chalk it up to office gossip and just get back to my job that I'm being paid for. And this is where the test of Olivia Chow is really coming down to the wire because, yes, you're signing these agreements to get money for housing. Are you updating shelter standards that dictate how we help homeless people and the refugees? And that is a source of contention for me because as I look at certain policies that govern different departments of the municipality, there is a desperate need to modernize it. So yes, we can fight and 
beg the feds to give us more money, or we could look internally at the reserves, which are at $2 billion, and actually ask ourselves what capital projects need to be done, what policy changes must happen, and how do we make sure that it gives the public more confidence? Because that's really what she ran on, this idea of giving the public more confidence, more care, et cetera, et cetera. So honestly, it's just office gossip until it takes your job. And, and I'll wrap. That's interesting. I'll wrap this one, Steve, by noting, uh, and, and you've seen this happen before, because not everything happens without a reason or in a vacuum. There's there's a theory in the story itself from Stephanie Levitz and, uh, and David Ryder that the chow move is meant to give a little bit of a bump to the NDP. She can then point out and say, I'm disappointed by the federal liberals, liberals, but it was the NDP that held the foot feet to the fire of some of these liberal MPs. And the idea is she's trying to give her former party and her former husband's party as well, her late husband's party, a bit of a bump because they've struggled so much in Toronto in federal elections in recent years. It's not a crazy theory. Uh, no, I'm glad you raised this because that uh, look, this is politics and politics underpins uh, all of these things. And the reality is if the polls hold up and I won't say that they will or they won't, but if the polls hold up, a lot of these Toronto liberal MPs are going to lose their seats. And the mayor currently is enjoying what did that poll say uh, the other week? 71% approval rating. So they understand that if they're going to compete in the marketplace of ideas, they need to get a different narrative out there, which suggests that, no, the federal liberals are doing fine by Toronto. And the former NDP MP, who's the mayor, who's trying to push a different narrative, needs to be challenged. And that's what they're doing. All right. I'm going to chat with somebody at 830, um, a young uh, activist about this climate lawsuit against the province. I was reading about it over the weekend, and um, it's a fascinating story. It went to the Court of Appeal yesterday. There could be a judgment today. Um, But I'll go to you, Chloe. There's seven young Ontario uh, residents who've been pursuing legal action against the Ford government over a climate change plan. And I again, you can sue anybody for anything i can be on board that the ford government hasn't done enough for climate and they rolled back some of the protections we had with the kathleen Wynne government but i also i gotta tell you i get a little uncomfortable seeing people in their 20s so anxious about the climate i think climate anxiety is a real thing based on surveys and studies so how do you view it are are, like we're adapting and we'll be fine if the temperatures warm just a bit in the next five days but that's me what do you see here in a lawsuit like this or climate anxiety among your generation i am actually fascinated by it because the kids are adopting very adult tactics and they're suing if i was that age i'd probably be protesting so it just shows an advancement in their civic engagement And I just say that from a purely policy point, but it just shows that kids can no longer wait for us as adults to make mature decisions. So they're taking it into their own hands. And if this earth is theirs to inherit, I applaud them for taking such a serious step. But it says a lot more about us as adults and how we're framing their future. We have these 25 year plans and it's like, They can't see 25 years. They need to see something happen in your term. So this is something that politicians really need to start addressing in how they present these projects. Kids need to be involved or they're going to sue us. So, yeah, it's something I'm going to keep my eye on and learn a little bit more about. It's changed a little bit, too, Steve. I mean, obviously, it's more of an issue. And obviously, we all can do our part. And we sure need corporations and governments to do some things uh, that make energy more renewable. I got it. I'm with it. But you and I had like we, like we grew up and we had our own, you know, we had nuclear meltdowns, um, Three Mile Island. We were worried about acid rain it was on everybody's mind in the 1980s. Um, 
and we're still here. Like, like I, 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 I want, I want to do better, but I also don't want people to not have kid, not not have kids, and and I, the anxiety really concerns me for a younger generation here. Yeah, no, I, I take that point, and I think uh, you found the issue here where uh, your other guest in her thirties and the guest currently talking in his sixties uh, can come together and agree. Uh, that the status quo is not sustainable. And mm-hmm. and I think as well, my initial takeaway on this, Greg, was that I was deeply impressed at the civic engagement of these young people who, who didn't just decide to go down to Queens Park and pick up some signs and yeah. chant some slogans. They're actually doing something really intelligent and really interesting. And I'm not as smart enough. I'm not a lawyer and I can't weigh in on the advisability of, of whether this case is going to work. But I can tell you how impressed I am at, at the level of commitment and engagement by these young people on this issue. All right, Steph, let's get to um, international students. We're going to jump there. Uh, Mark Miller spoke out about it over the weekend, Canada's immigration minister. Starting to hear, Steve, there'll be some harsher rollbacks. Um, and I think we'd agree. It's not liberal. It's not progressive to just hand college diplomas out en masse and give students those coming to our country and those already here. They don't get a fair shot at school, crowded classrooms, can't find an apartment, sleeping in tents or sleeping in vans. None of this is good. So it makes me ask how there weren't caps to begin with and who's culpable in creating what we all, I think, agree is a problem. Um, Is this is this the proverbial case of the horses have left the barn already? What can we do here? Uh, I think you have to go back further. I think we have to go back to the first year of the Ford government, which is five and a half years ago. And we have to remember that that government, in a kind of a populist spasm, decided to make some great headlines by freezing tuition rates and making all extracurriculars uh, voluntary. And what that did was, I understand they got some good headlines on that, and people probably came away, people who were going to post-secondary probably came away saying, oh, this is great, my fees aren't going to go up next year. Yeah. The effect of that was to deprive universities and colleges of the money they need to do their thing. And what did those colleges and universities turn around and therefore do? They ramped up foreign students coming into this country uh, significantly because, of course, they pay a lot more in tuition in order to refill their coffers that were deprived by the provincial government. And now we're having all these other problems that come. I think this decision has its feet in the original provincial decision. And if we don't see any change in the funding of post-secondary institutions by the provincial government, this is not going to get solved. This is tough, Chloe. Like nobody wants that. I'm going to be honest. Nobody wants that Trump rhetoric about closing the borders and they're coming to get us and all that. That's not what this is about. It's giving people proper channels of immigration, proper opportunity to study overseas, the overseas being here in Canada or specifically Ontario, and making sure they have the same shot everybody else does. And we failed. We've utterly failed at every single level of government, these kids, the last five years. And I don't know where, what the institutions are doing with all this money they're taking in. I would say that this is an argument for one public education system that is funded at all levels. And honestly, as someone who works at a university with these programs, the province also has its own immigration nomination programs to bring in immigrants. And they've also approved a lot of private colleges to become licensed mills. So there is a really big need to regulate higher education and the skill development processes that it produces. Because honestly, this was an issue for me a few years ago where it's like the universities were not producing students with the skills that the labor market needed. Yeah. But there's also an issue where employers are heavily subsidized by the government through wage subsidies and a variety of programs that allow them to suppress our wages to bring in this foreign labor. So 
there's a really big need to interrogate our workforce development programs and our system because honestly, I see jobs being posted and they're ghost jobs that employers use to prove that there's not enough Canadians applying for this job and that makes a case to bring in a foreign worker. So there's a whole system that needs to be dismantled, rebuilt, and it's the province and the feds that really need to take responsibility for it. Chloe, do you think we're getting, are we getting to a better place where if someone walks into a room and says, hey, I have an important thing to say about immigration, it felt like five, 10 years ago, maybe longer, we'd all flex up and go, oh no, what's this person going to say? Um, and and, is, and is, it, is he or she going to be offensive almost with their or xenophobic with their opinions. But I don't know that we're there right now. I, I'd like to believe this won't have to be a left center right issue. And based on ideology, this is just practicality for our country and being fair to people who come in. Right. Absolutely. And this is where civic education becomes a sh- really big thing, because at the federal level, there are immigration programs for workers at the provincial level, mm-hmm. there are immigration programs for workers. And they don't really support people after the resettlement program. So instead of like the government working with mid-sized towns and small towns to send immigrants there because they're dying like municipalities, they're getting concentrated in Toronto. This is where the province should be investing in towns outside of Toronto to bring immigrants. It's not that we can't sustain them. It's that there's no strategic plan after they arrive. Mm. And that's really where we as citizens need to hold the government to the fire because it's like, I do want immigrants to live here, but not at the expense of homelessness. Bingo. Um, All right. I got a couple minutes left and and this story kind of landed on us in the last hour or so, but I'll give you the headline and just get a feel for how you are on it. Grocery giant Loblaws pushing forward government to change cannabis retail rules. And the concept is this is what Loblaws wants. Loblaws has been asking the province for some legal changes that would allow the supermarket giant to enter the bud business. Knowing nothing about um, your private life or consumption habits, Steve, although I think you're a great guy and and, and all that. um, I'm going to go to you first. Um, What what are your observations about, you know, like we we had a little bit of a moralism thing. Oh, my goodness. We can't sell beer and wine in grocery stores. We were like the last place on the planet to do it. What about marijuana? Would we feel a little different about that at a giant grocery Grocery store. Hang on, I, I can't answer your question yet. I got to put my joint down. Hang on. How do you think I get through this segment? Exactly. <laughs> um, boy, uh, how do I? This is a terrible thing for somebody who's supposed to engage in punditry to say. <laughs> but I don't care very much about this story. I, you know, there, there are, there are. What do they call those stores? The Tokes stores, the Ontario Cannabis Store, Tokes for short. I kind of like that acronym. Um, there's lots of them around. They sell the stuff, don't they? Uh, okay, blah blah. Go get go go try and get a piece of the action. But huh. oh gosh, Greg, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just don't care that much about this one. Chloe, care factor and and what would it do for you? As a former beer store employee, I kind of see the, the opportunity to have a concentrated place to just recycle the packaging and just have a place for adults to buy this stuff. I really, from the back end, I think that the marijuana industry produces a lot of waste in terms of containers. I think that if we want to recycle them, like the way the store recycles cans, just keep it as is and create a back end that recycles these products. I really don't want a small pot while I'm... (laughs) Shopping for produce. <laughs> I smell it everywhere else in Toronto. Why not? Why not in the fresh section with the lettuce and the and the uh, and the watercress? Buy more of it. <laughs> that's not. That's a point. That's an unintended consequence that I hadn't considered. Uh, and the it's a logical effects of it. I just really am tired of big box stores and 
personally, I'm breaking up with convenience. So it's just like I'm willing to walk that extra mile to support my local vendor versus Galen Weston. How many boats does he need? I hear you loud and clear. Hey, I got to leave it at there. Thanks so much for the time today, you guys. Good talking to you guys. Bye-bye. Chloe Brown, Steve Pakin.